happy. I hear something. Welcome to the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. Thought-provoking interviews with interesting guests and commentary on everything. Food, sports, God, gardening, church, politics, music, movies, comedy, you name it, we talk about it. I'm Cody Stopper. And this is Craig Morton. On this podcast, we talk to writers, teachers, activists, and we seek some wisdom. And as always, we are allergic to big words. But not some big ideas. Profound things will be said, but entirely by accident. So who's going to be the first to say something profound? Over, uh, let's play some, what are the odds? What are the odds? <laughs> we'll say something <laughs> profound. My money's on you. I, I've got it, COVID it could, fuzzies. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So... But uh, it's not really a, it's it's not really a brain disease, so you're all right. Good, all right. It's not maybe. impacting me neural neurologically. Well, maybe. I I, I, should, I should be careful I should, to say yeah, that. I was gonna say we may need to Google uh, COVID. What is it called? Long haulers. And see. yeah, we're not gonna. You're not gonna go there. So <laughs> I hope. Do you so. know? Do you know who Bruce Reyes Chow is? Um, I'm familiar with him. Yeah. Yeah. He has long haulers and oh, really? it has dramatically impacted his career. I bet. Yeah. Um, he just does not have the, for a year and a half now, he's just not have the stamina uh, to do what he normally would do. So he had to take leave. All right. Wow. Uh, yeah. So All anyway, right. so <laughs> let's um, get the show on the road. Here's the show. So, I, saw, I read this article today, and I think this would be a great way to get us started. And we can I pick up it. the topic a little bit later. Okay. Okay. So, you're, are you? I mean, you started off by you know ac- talking about wagers. You know, you know who's, yes, you know, who's going to say Over something under. profound. What? Who, what are? The, and so, here's three topics that I think. Okay, this is this is what to watch for in the Super Bowl. This gives some. This gives non-football fans something to pay attention to. So here's here's here it is. What here's one one question. What yeah. and this is from the athletic. So yes, I started oh, yeah. subscribing to the athletic. Yeah, because uh, I just don't watch enough TV sports. So this it way I get to read up. stuff. <laughs> and so and so first question is what color gator gatorade will douse the winning coach? I mean, you think about the colors of Gatorade that are available. I Blue, mean there's, green, there's, yellow. There's, there's a rainbow, a yeah. veritable rainbow. Ooh, don't use big but, words, Craig. Yeah, veritable. Okay, there's there's like a rainbow. <laughs> That's better. Okay, so so okay, um, Kansas City Chiefs. Yes, pri- they're primarily red. Mm-hmm. Um, and then who's that other team? Oh, the the Eagles. The, the Eagles. They're they're green ish and silver. Yes, and, that's the that's I mean, true. I wonder I mean, so, if that dictates the color of Gatorade they use. I, I, well, I don't know, but 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 right now it's the odds are um, for red or pink. So, oof. 
I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with okay, I'm trying to I'm gonna go with orange. Uh well that kind of orange, orange yellowish golden one, that greenish yeah, yellow orange, one, or just the or full orange. Blue. Orange or blue. I'm I'm one of those two. I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah. go with one of those two. I'm I'm kind of thinking about that classic greenish yellow one. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the first or, one. the original Gatorade. You know, so oh, by by the way, what color is is that original Gatorade? Like, do they call it Gatorade? Gatorade green, or was well, it? But I, I look at it and I was, and to me, it's kind of a light limey green. Yeah. People I know say no, that's yellow. Yeah. And I don't know. Lemon, if that's like a lemon lime was the original. Was the original color, and then orange. So whatever lemony lime, yeah, yellowy. And I think it, I think it leans green. toward green, green, and that's yeah. so that that greenish yellow one. That's the one I'm going to lean toward. <laughs> I like it. All right. So so that's going, that's one that's one thing people can watch for. I'm going to go. Here's orange. the other one. How okay. long will Chris Stapleton's Ooh. anthem be? Oh no! Uh, hmm. I mean, it's and, the over and, under. Well, here it is. There's not really. It just it. It's just here. The writer says, "I'll put a dollar on the under." I would uh, go I under. Really Chris Stapleton seems he's not a, uh, you know, he's not a diva. He's not a. Uh, let's hit the. He's runs. not going to hold out a note for a yeah. really long time. <laughs> he's not. But let's get some fills. What, no fills. What is the chance he's going to do a Willie Nelson and come and skip a whole line, <laughs> and then go really under? <laughs> you remember that one years ago? Yeah, I do. So and it threw like people were complaining. Like, does that? I think I remember betters complaining and wanting. Yeah, that one. Know, that one didn't that count. Or... Shouldn't count. Or, but it. Yeah. Nah. So you got to factor in everything. You got to factor. But in some, you know, somebody, somebody ran. You know, sung it at one at one fifty one. Yeah. The last four anthem times. So, uh, can you remember who any of those last four anthemers were? Anth- anthemers and uh no <laughs> me either i don't either all i remember is sometimes when they get so overly um i don't know dramatic or whatever yeah kind of stretch it out it even though i'm not a big great big you know red white and blue patriot right. and all that it does feel like that's contrary to the task of drawing attention to the country rather than drawing attention to yourself right I don't I know. know. Lady Gaga it. did it one year, but was that any time recently? Um, but was it was it was it the same time she did the halftime show? I don't think so. I don't think oh, they okay. ever do. Both. You don't double bill, huh? No. Yeah, I think probably, there's. Pink did it one year. Gladys Knight did it one year. Garth, no, did Garth Brooks do the anthem? I think so. One year. Wow. But that was a long. I mean, we're talking a long time I mean, ago. But, but see, these are things to watch that yes. that I had never really considered. And um, here's the other one. What yes. will Rihanna sing first? Ooh, ooh, that's a good one. I mean, that's you know. So here, here they say, um, <clears throat> "Don't stop the music." Is favorite at plus three hundred. Uh, give me, uh, give me. We found the love. We found seven hundred. Mm. So yeah, it's like. Those are those are things uh, that, you know, people like me who don't really follow football, like, you know, some people, these are things <laughs> to watch for. I like it. <laughs> Pay attention to those for the Super Bowl, folks. 
that that'll be important. Or get yeah, your the other important thing is now that we're that talking we... about this, that that means I got to get this episode edited and uploaded yes. before the Super Bowl comes around. Because <laughs> we're gonna well, we got to tell people we're including our Super Bowl uh, predictions. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh wait. Oh yeah, there are some. Are you gonna get it out now. before the Super Bowl? Yes. Okay. Two episodes yeah. in one week. Yeah, that's kind of rough. So I All think right. it can. I think it can be done. You could do it, buddy. I believe in you. Oh. Don't count on me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just might, because if you're like laying around COVIDizing. <laughs> uh, so. All right, moving on. All right. Uh, wait, you did have an icebreaker question, but I guess let's. I did, but I think we took on. We, yeah, we, we took, we took, we, we didn't we took too much. We yeah. save it. Save it for a uh, two minute warning if we decide to do one. There we go. We'll throw it in with the Super Bowl predictions. Anyway, Craig, as we discussed in our last episode, we are tackling a couple of topics uh, this season. Open and relational theology being one of them, and white Christian nationalism, or Christian nationalism as the other. Yeah, it's kind of redundant to say white. <laughs> I know. So, I, know. I think, yeah. Is it? So, Is it? Well, I mean, well, we can we can talk about that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um. So uh, you have kind of taken the lead or the point on the Christian nationalism because you have been actively pursuing research on this and have been diving into it over the course of a year or close to a year. Would you say, would you consider yourself now an expert on the topic? Well, <laughs> I, I don't like the setup on that one, but. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Would you say you bring yeah. more to the table than a common folk I like so. myself okay i i i think i do bring uh, a quite a bit to the table yes part, but but there's also a, a huge uh, gap i would say in the in the conversation around this yes. pheno- the social phenomena oh yes um, cuz you spent then, a year talking about it or discussing it it was I, you know it was probably it may have been about a year ago i began listening to a podcast called uh, Extremely American yeah, that was originally published or produced by KBSX, the public radio station out Boise, yep. with one of their journalists by the name of Keith Drewson. And uh, at, the thing is, I've this stuff's been in the back of my mind ever since we moved to this region. Okay. Uh, 20 plus years ago, when we were being interviewed to come to Idaho to do church planting. It was our conference minister who asked, when you think of Idaho, what do you think of? Now, the right Mm. answer was supposed to be potatoes. My response was neo-Nazi skinheads. Oh, my goodness. And and he is like, "Uh, what? Not where I I thought this was going. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But part of that that comes out of when we lived in Kansas, there was a rest stop out on, what is it, Interstate 72, 76, that goes across Kansas to, to Denver. Anyway, in Western Kansas, there's this rest stop that is covered with bumper stickers about nationalism, Zionism, you know, neo-Nazi groups and all these things. And then there was a little, for more information, um, and it had an address in a place called Hillsborough, Kansas. And so that was on my radars. Where are these people? Why are they here? Um, How do they pop up? Yeah. And out of that curiosity, I became familiar with um the the neo-nazi groups in in and around Coeur d'Alene and, and yep. Hayden Lake 
Um, yep. And so, so it's been on my radar for a little while, but it was actually last year with Keith Drewson that really I was able to jump down deep into the rabbit hole. Uh, wow. And so that was, that was a really good start. And then that linked me through his uh, work and he was largely responding to the, to the news events of Eamon Bundy, like, well, where did yeah. Eamon Bundy come from? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it was, it was a interesting way to begin this because it was there were so many resources that Drewson pulled out that it's like okay I'm going to go down that path I'm going to go down that path and I'll check this thing out too yeah so that's kind of how I got into it and so yeah it's been it's been about a year uh and several books and uh many podcasts and a variety of other resources what made you you say if this noticing the work of Drew but what I mean was there uh a news item or event that really prompted you to go? Was it January 6th? Was it the, the January well, 6th moment? You know, that, I think or... even, even before J6, I think it was, I think I was beginning to think about it because I would drive just because of the regional nature of the consulting work I would do. Sure. Driving over to Salem, Oregon, I would often drive through um, places in rural Oregon that were uh, Bundy, kind of um, strongholds yeah and so you know it was already I was already thinking about it previous to that and my experience of of Salem Oregon my feeling was Salem is the Mason-Dixon line of the Pacific Northwest in some ways uh, at least right now in at least in Oregon I should say because south of Oregon I mean south of Salem you find the confederate flags yep north of Salem they begin to dwindle and so there was, so these things were, were on my radar, also partially out of a um, really fascinating uh, Oregon public broadcasting documentary on the, the uh, Oregon, Oregon State University, which has been around since the uh, 1840s. But during the 1860s, all the male students had to wear Confederate gray. yeah yeah right yeah and and then the other parts of that is in this region the the redlining the laws that were um that denied basic civil rights to people of color um you know those were those were written into oregon law and also were part of the founding of the state of washington to create this bastion of whiteness and so those those are things I knew of I've I've known of for quite a while and um, and so that was I think J six just kind of like yeah this is something to really need okay. to be aware of and then the thing from J six I think that really disturbed me was the vast array of Christian symbols so many Christian flags like, Christian well, crosses verses yeah well and some of the some of the crosses were those that were um, some of the Ill, uh, emblems were those of the Crusaders. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think it's the Deus Volt, the the white yes. field with the red cross in the middle. Yes, and uh, it was that was just startling from a pastoral theological church history side. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I wanted to kind of tap into this a bit because it's not just. I mean, we're looking at these moments and they're blowing up, or they, you know, January sixth. But there's so much history behind all that i mean there's a reason they chose specifically certain symbols it's not just as a cross you know yeah (laughs) Yeah. and and 
And well, it's also this assumption that, oh, uh, here's this cross, and now we have this uh, assumed affinity because, oh, you're Christian, so you must be yeah. one of us or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. I think it's this aiming for this kind of uh, alliance. Exactly. And yeah, yeah it, it puts us, it puts, I know it put me back on my feet a little bit. I mean, I was, it's almost like I was transported 10 years or even 15 years back in my spiritual development where I, I remember moments where I had to, I felt this compulsion to say, but I'm not like those Christians or even right. like, I don't want to be called a Christian. I'm a follower of, of Christ. You know what I mean? Like I remember right, those moments right. <laughs> that was like that traumatic, not traumatic, but that moment, I mean, tra- traumatic for a lot, for some people, but that moment just whoo, transported me back 15 years where I was like on my heels, like, no, no, that's not me. That's not us. Oh, that's not. <laughs> yeah. It puts you in this kind of, um, kind of defensive position yeah. of wanting to separate from, but mm-hmm. I think that's the other challenge of some of the scholars of, who are working in the, you know, in this area of trying to understand Christian nationalism is it's not separate from us it is us you gotta own some part of it there there are things within our tradition not necessarily in jesus and you know the teachings of the gospels but there's something in our forms of christianity that gives space for these things to emerge that's right and And so even it's like we don't want to yeah we don't want to accept it but i think it's part of the it's easy it's the, to not take responsibility, but then the problem is no one takes responsibility, which means responsibility to me doesn't mean just like, yeah, that was me. We did that. Responsibility also includes like, now I'm responsible for it not happening again. What can we right. do to help it? What yeah. can we do different? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And so if you, if you just lay it on the doorstep of other people, it's just going to keep happening because nobody yeah, so steps do, up so, to now the other thing is how do you come out and actually do something about it because it really does feel like it's it's a social trend it's a it's kind of an amorphous amorphous movement uh it's also a perfect storm of these many different streams coming together right and i think it's hard to find out well what part do you push back against what part do you resist yep very good. Okay. Well, we're asking these questions of you. I'm asking these questions of you, Craig, because we are setting up our first interview with a um, under this heading of this specific topic of uh, Christian nationalism. So we have interviewed Christian nationalist experts <laughs> in the past, but this is our first. Like, okay, we're actually doing a cohesive theme on this, and so our first. Um, interviewee is Pamela Cooper White and you interviewed her. So I'm asking you uh, some preliminary questions and we've already covered a lot of ground, but I want to, I want to hear what your thoughts are like just straight up. What, and I think uh, Pamela does a good job defining this, but what is Christian? Just what is it? What is Christian nationalism? What makes it different say from, so when you, if you'd asked me back when you were moving into Idaho I wouldn't have necessarily thought Christian nationalism, it'd be in my mind somewhere, but I would be thinking more like separatists. That was a big mm-hmm. part of my right. experience of yep. Idaho growing up. So yeah, and, and and that's still a trend. And I think yeah. that that kind of secessionist mindset has kind of you know rolled over into this. There's yeah. overlap. This is, there's some blurry but, lines there. So I think there's two things with that. I mean, first of all, what is nationalism and what what is a Christian version of nationalism? And so nationalism generally becomes a political uh, frame of reference that has a very strong sense of our way or the highway, right. which is this 
massive groupthink that everybody has to be on the same page. You know, it creates litmus tests. It creates you know these pledges or um, you know ways to make sure that there's no um, no nobody varies or nobody goes off the established path. Right. And so nationalism becomes very uh, authoritarian, autocratic, um, democratic uh, ideals of um, diversity of opinion. You know, needing to vote because well, why do you need to vote if there's only one way to do something? <laughs> um, you know, all these things become become um, all those things that we think is part of a democratic republic become moot in nationalism. Right now, the the Christian version of it is, is a really that. unique aspect because it's it's laying over and a a, a, a non historic version of Christianity. Yeah, uh, and a non historic version of American history. Yes. Uh, one of one of the scholars who I read uh, frequently is uh, uh, Samuel Perry, and last year he did a, a study. I think it was Samuel Perry and Andrew Whitehead, perhaps, did a study where they looked at historical reality and ideological commitments. Mm-hmm. And in the study, they were looking at folks who said, you know, this is a Christian nation. The Constitution Declaration were inspired by God. Um, you know, these kinds of Christian nationalist statements. But what they were doing is they're, the, the questions in the, you know, were basically asking, do you know the historical facts of the founding of this nation? And they found that even though people did know the historical facts, they would set those aside to promote the ideology. Yep. And so people who knew that this was not a Christian established nation for one Christian religion, mm-hmm. their ideology would swing toward espousing this or expressing it. Right. And I think one of the most disturbing things in there is it had nothing to do with educational level. So folks with uh, no college, folks with advanced degrees, folks with doctorates, still ideology trumps history. Oh, that's interesting. And so what what happens is the Christian ideal becomes one that's largely I would say Constantinian, yep. where church and state are one, um, yep. where there is a a significant, um, almost an elimination of of theologies of atonement. Mm. Um, you know, for instance, one of the most um, frightening writers is a fellow by the name of Stephen Wolf, uh, who's written a book on the called "The Case for Christian Nationalism." Oof. And it it has this feeling of a you know what um, a fundamentalist Islamic republic you know an ISIS kind of yep. character where you know that is not the best expression of Islam or what a, what what the what the Quran really teaches. Similarly, this Christian nationalist view would be you know ostracizing people for you know s- uh, sexual expression or gender nonconformity uh if you weren't a believer you could be ostracized in you know from the community and so you end up getting this pressure to call yourself christian perhaps simply to be able to fit in um you know and it it's one of the one of the things that keeps coming around in the community of scholars that i keep following on uh through social media is that margaret atwood's Atwood's work in the handmaid's tale was not meant to be a playbook (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and it just 
and and same the same way that if anybody's watched the read those stories or watched the the, um, the Hulu series, um, there is this reference to some kind of Christian mythology. But the mythology is around power. It's around men, and it's a, not including things like grace and atonement and Jesus. Right. Yep. Ugh, so, the, but but each but each scholar, uh, it's interesting. Uh, uh, Jamar Tisby, yeah, who wrote the. Um, Oh, I just blanked on the the book's name. The um, color of law, the color of compromise. Yeah, 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 yeah. And in his series on national uh, um, on nationalism, Christian nationalism, he took time to ask each of his guests, "Well, what do you think it is?" And each had a slightly different angle on it. And to this point, most of the work has been done by sociologists, um, historians and political scientists right and it's really not something that's been picked up by by practical theologians by church leaders uh by folks who are trying to figure out a way to you know how do you deal with this in your community and oh, so that's, that's that's where that's where i think that's where we need to go we need to and fill that's, in that, that gap. that's driven your year long because you and we'll talk more about this later because i think it's about time we dovetail into the interview but yeah, you yeah. you have been specifically very targeted on a pastoral response to Christian nationalism. So, hmm. yeah, you know, so we, there's a whole lot more to talk about. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so because I've yeah. read it, it's indeed true. Um, and you mentioned quite a few key authors' books and whatnot, and there's a lot more. We're going to interview some of them, but among them, I'm not finding Dominique. Uh, a few, a few pastors, but not very many. Right, that, uh, right. Yeah, I can't. And, 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 and not white is... pastors, and not white pastors. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, that's so, not true. I, I, Who I did think... we interview last year? Um, lady in uh, Minnesota is a pastor, Lutheran pastor. Right. So we'll we will be talking with Angela yes. Denker in, uh, a little bit down the road. Yep. And so what we have at this point, we have a psychologist, a psychiatrist, psychologist, psychologist, <laughs> um, theologian um, from Union Seminary. And yep. that's Pamela Cooper White. So yep. she she brings a, a perspective that's, um, you know, brings in that uh, kind of behavioral side. And also, like, how do we build communicational relationships how do we how do we begin talking with people who are you know on a different side yeah. um then another interview with uh, drew Strait, who's a, a professor of new testament at uh anabaptist mennonite biblical seminary in elkhart you know he's the he's, he's there teaching people how to theologically practical theology about how to do this and then angela yeah. denker uh, about her pastoral experience so that's good i like it yeah okay good 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 all right Good setup and for now, our interview, and here we go. Yeah. Hello, uh, this is Craig uh, with the All That's Holy Blue Collar podcast, and uh, we're beginning um, to do a series looking at pastoral responses to the to the not so much the issue, but the movement, I guess, of Christian national. And uh, some time ago, I was introduced to the work of. Uh, Pamela Cooperwhite from um, a professor at the Associate Mennonite Biblical Seminary, and so read his uh, comments and then picked up Pamela Cooperwhite's book, The Psychology of Christian Nationalism, 
and was just uh, thrilled that somebody was beginning this work. Uh, so today, got a conversation with uh, Dr. Pamela Cooper White, who, and I believe, did you change recently the schools at which you're teaching? But I believe you're a professor of pastoral counseling at Columbia Seminary. Is that right? Uh, no, actually, and that's been quite a long time ago. Okay, okay, because I was looking up uh, some bio, I, so yeah. Oh, well, I don't, yeah, maybe an old bio. I uh, am the Christiane Brooks Johnson Professor of Psychology and Religion at Union Theological Seminary in New York. Excellent. So are I you did in teach at Columbia. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. So I knew there was a Columbia in there, but I wasn't sure it was Columbia University in New York or it was Columbia Seminary, so. No, it's very confusing because my uh, we're, we're very loosely, uh, we share certain functions with Columbia University and I went from Columbia Seminary to okay. Union. Yes, right. but I'm at Union Theological Seminary. All right, very good. Um, so in, in um, getting into this conversation, uh, around the topics that you um, brought up in the book. Is there anything you want to introduce yourself and identify yourself, maybe how you got to this topic or how you happen to be uh, a seminary professor? I mean, uh, faith pilgrimage, that kind of thing. How did you come to, to where you are? Well, that would cover a lot of ground. Uh, yeah, yeah. Approaching retirement uh, from institutional academia at the end of this year. Wow. Uh, so I won't go over like my whole resume, but um, I guess what I would say in a nutshell um, is that in terms of the faith journey, um, social justice has been a red thread through my work and going all the way back to when I was a teenager and uh, was reading, do you, do you remember the, the paraphrase Bible, Good News for Modern Man? Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, I went running into the house and saying, we have to give up everything we have and give it to the poor. And my parents said, uh, don't be a fanatic. <laughs> uh, were were you raised in a, in, a, in a Christian home? Or was uh, that? Yes. Uh, okay. Yes. Uh, Methodist and primarily Episcopal. And okay, uh, yeah. then I, uh, through a number of things, I, I, uh, I was a musicologist at Harvard University and uh, went to the Divinity School and got my MDiv and got ordained in the United Church of Christ, which was right. the traditionalist tradition in New England, and um, really did try um, for a number of years to live that kind of uh, simplicity, um, and uh, including uh, a couple of trips to El Salvador uh, uh, by which I met my husband, who is fluent in Spanish. So I got him to go on the trip uh, to work with pastors who'd received death threats. Wow. Uh, worked with my first ministry was with um, street people in Salem, Massachusetts, which we now call unhoused. And for a wow. while, listen, back then they called themselves street people. So um, uh, from there, did a lot of work and have continued um, to stay connected to the movement to stop violence against women and working especially with um, intimate partner violence, um, victims and survivors, and also clergy sexual abuse. So um, you can see how regardless of what institution that I might have been working in and through, my work was always around some kind of advocacy. And so um, I actually did not 
have the intention of writing a book about Christian nationalism. I was busy uh, working, doing some follow-up research uh, for my, one of my recent books called Old and Dirty Gods, Religion, Antisemitism, and the Origins of Psychoanalysis. And I, I am psychoanalytically trained, and I'm very interested in the history of psychoanalysis and how it can still in its contemporary forms be useful in the practice of pastoral counseling and psychotherapy. Um, so I was I was doing that. I was working on uh, turn of the 20th century Viennese anti-Semitism. <laughs> and, um, but I gave, uh, I was part of a panel at the American Academy of Religion quite a few years ago now, around the time of the 2016 election, I believe, and Will Bergkamp, who was at Fortress Press, came and heard me talk about the significance of psychoanalytic views on group psychology and how a group can become captive to the mystique of a charismatic leader. And we're talking about the election, we're talking about Donald Trump. And he said, I, uh, I've been looking, I would really like somebody to write a book for Fortress Press about this movement on Christian nationalism. And I would really like you to do that and to bring that in. And also to, um, you know, as a pastoral counselor, psychotherapist to talk about is there a way that people can talk across the divide? So that was the impetus. Um, okay. I follow politics very closely anyway, because I am involved in um, movements for social justice. And so I took it on and basically wrote it in a summer uh, because the, the issue seemed very urgent. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was the summer immediately after the January 6th insurrection. And um, yeah. little I know how relevant it was going to continue to be. Uh, so I learned things even in the process of researching the book that uh, disturbed me even more than what I already knew as a as a citizen uh, reading the news. Yeah, and, and and because of your interest in advocacy through your entire life, you end up. It sounds like that also just sets you up to be fully aware, kind of of you know <laughs> politics and what's going on in cultural movements and all that. It, it wasn't like you had to do a dive into like, oh, what's going on in culture? You were you were already no. engaged. Yeah. And and actually, um, I I live both in New York City and in rural uh, Pennsylvania near Gettysburg. Okay. And uh, the gubernatorial candidate, but at the time um, he was not yet not yet declared for governor. Um, State Senator Doug Mastriano was a, a very public example of. A politician who has a an extreme right wing Christian nationalist stance. Yes. He into the national news for that once he be, became a gubernatorial candidate. So right here on the ground in, in central Pennsylvania, I was also acutely aware of what the followers of Trump and Mastriano looked like and seemed like, and um the ways in which they were captive to a kind of rhetoric that in every way I just found very, very concerning uh, considering my own, well, I'm, I'm now an Episcopal priest. I kind of missed, I skipped over that part, but <laughs> very concerning to my own theology and my own faith journey that, that people could be so really brainwashed and co-opted into a political movement that, had really very little to do with the gospel at all. 
the this the the Mastriano case is a really interesting situation just because of my own my 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 background is a, as as a Mennonite and to mm-hmm. find out that he was actually a part of a Mennonite congregation there in Pennsylvania I mean it wasn't the same as our denomination but still part of that Anabaptist group of believers that are supposed to be part of the Peace Church and it's like that's yeah. a community of people. And you talk about groupthink in in the book. It's like that's a community of people who have gone pretty far afield from the traditional established uh, fundamentals of Anabaptism uh, to yeah. to give Mastriano a full hearing and and you know and and support. Uh, but I found that that was even true in 2016 with the number of Amish folks who actually voted for President Trump, which was mm. a very odd thing. So there's something very compelling or uh, uh, contagious about white nationalism that it actually can move people, almost people who would otherwise not be attracted to it. Right. And and I, I guess I'm getting ahead of myself. One of the things that I'd like to ask you is how would you define or do you have a do you, what, what is your working definition of Christian nationalism? Right. Well, um, of course. Sociological researchers try to stay strictly to, do you agree with these statements about separation of church and state and so forth? But basically, I would define Christian nationalism as a social and political movement with the goal of restoring the United States, I put restoring in quotes, to a fictional origin as a so-called Christian nation with a not at all fictional origin in white masculine supremacy. It's white nationalism, you just use that term, cloaked in an extreme and distorted conservative version of Christianity. And one of the things that's so compelling, and we can get into, um, you know, what your other question about what causes people to be drawn in, but it's perceived as a battle to restore a threatened white dominance in government and all of civic and private life. And it's cloaked as a cosmic battle of good and evil, even to bring about the second coming of the reign of Christ on earth. So, you yeah. know, it, it heightens the appeal for people who feel perhaps threatened or d- downtrodden themselves to think that they're joining into something that is so compellingly uh, cosmic, not just political, but cosmic. And, and that, that um, battle that has to be fought, it reminds me of the campaign ad that, um, oh, the Florida governor, who I happily have forgotten his name right now uh, but he had a campaign ad where where it was continually this fight we have to fight there's a fight mm-hmm. you know we need to join this fight and um which seems like uh psychologically a really compelling word or concept to use to trigger somebody's fears to to kind of pull them in yeah it's used and, and trump famously or infamously said at the rally right before the mob uh, approached the Capitol. Um, you've got to fight like hell. If you don't fight, you won't have a country anymore. Right. Yeah. And and I I think that also fits into the the uh, white masculinity of to fight. You know, it's 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 such a it's such a uh, ideal to be a fighter. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of being a peacemaker, you know, does doesn't quite have the same appeal. I guess. <laughs> and even the best peace peacemakers get get called fighters. So, you know, fighting for right, peace. Right. But 
nonviolent resistance yeah. is a way of I, I I of course prefer the term resistance to fighting, but right. I think I mean, this is the psychoanalytic side of me, but human beings naturally have aggression in us. We wouldn't be able to get out of the bed in the morning if we couldn't, if we didn't have an element of aggression. The other, the other drive, of course, is libido. But in maturity, uh, you use your aggression and channel it toward civilization, (laughs) (laughs) things that are are good for the world and so you take that energy which is really just you know a kind of a forward moving energy and you use it for good but that can be done through nonviolent resistance it doesn't have to involve violence right right it 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 it's a change of language that is significant uh to move away from that word fight or uh, fighter uh and move toward resistance um it's a significant change of vocabulary because it Mm -hmm. then has a different kind of personality there well i don't you know i do think we have to fight injustice right but the question is do you do that with violence or you do that in other there are other strategies for that exactly yeah um when 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 i went to seminary i went to the seminary i went to because i wanted to study with ron sider who was you know Mm -hmm. christian in the age of hunger and um, oh sure, I know. And Bronze he had he had written a book called um, I think what the title was Nonviolence, but the publisher put the subtitle The Ultimate Weapon, and he was <laughs> so upset with that subtitle. I bet, that's, I bet that, he was. Yeah, <laughs> it's like no, that's not the point. Yeah, it's not this offensive gesture, you know, a, of attack. And so I forgot what the subtitle he had wanted, but uh, it, it didn't pass muster with the editors. Well, I can tell you that both book covers and titles are not all up to the author, and you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'll leave it. I'll leave that comment right there. <laughs> okay. All right. So, anything in, not in your book that you wanted to make sure? You, no, I guess. But um, the the um, the 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 book, um, the psychology of Christian nationalism. Uh, you you divide it largely into three parts. And one of the sections you do jump into Freudian psychology, you go into um, aspects of Freud, but it's to me, I mean, I haven't read a lot of Freud. I'm not a psychoanalytic scholar. I'm a little bit aware, but what I was refreshed by were um, the insights you pulled out from Freud to help understand this social phenomena. Uh, what what are some of the things, or maybe not just Freud? There's some others in there as well. What what yeah, kind of psychoanalytic <laughs> um, gifts are there in that in that uh, that that perspective that speak to our contemporary situation? Well, let me back up and say that I think there are both conscious and unconscious motivations that right. people are drawn into to these kinds of movements. It's not all unconscious. Um, uh, I've already talked about the, you know, the evangel- evangelical uh, recruitment of people um, that's heightened by this sense of a moral battle to engage in, but also the sense of belonging that comes with right. engaging in such a battle. Um, and a lot of conscious objections to anything, quote, liberal or elite also come from 
fears of loss. Um, you mentioned that the Amish, some of the Amish uh, voted uh, for right-wing candidates and causes. Well, the majority, a pretty large majority of Christian nationalists are living in rural areas and they feel that government has forgotten them, whether that's accurate or not. They feel right. that they've been right. left behind. And um, so the rhetoric of immigrants, for example, coming in and taking jobs away from uh, Americans, which isn't actually true when you break it down and you look at who's taking what jobs, but that rhetoric appeals because they're feeling like the American dream has betrayed them when in fact the American dream so-called was never really set up for the vast majority of people in the, this country, certainly not people of color. Um, white social status, the fear of, I, I quoted in the book at one point that a lot of poor and um, working class white folks will say, well, I may not be rich, but at least I'm not black. Right. So the, and they, until Trump came into power, they probably were suppressing saying things like that. And now, of course, that has become a, a much more overt part of the American discourse. But um, there is a real fear um, that they have that's backed up by the U.S. Census Bureau that predicts that the year 2042 will be the end of a white majority in the United States. And right. whereas many of us look forward to that and think that diversity is a gift that enriches our lives, these are folks who feel existentially threatened by that. And then alongside that, um, the evangelical Christian church puts a lot of theological emphasis on the idea of male headship, both in the private sphere of the home and in public. And so the loss of this patriarchal authority um, and the recent revelations of the Southern Baptist Convention's cover-up of sexual abuse, for example, is really right. not surprising. Um, but there's been a cynical alliance of the leadership of conservative Christian churches. And I'm not talking now about just the rank and file, but the leadership and the wealthy donors of uh, evangelical churches for at least 30 years have been in a cynical alliance with right-wing politicians. And to infiltrate every layer of government all the way down to local school boards, all the way up to the Supreme Court. And with the overturning of Roe versus Wade, we see the fruits of that kind of strategic, relentless infiltration. And um, I was on a panel with someone talking about this phenomenon not too long ago. And she also made the point that um, if you're thinking in terms of the millennium and the apocalypse, You've got as all the time in the universe to keep plugging away at this. And so they are incredibly persistent. Um, and then there's a fair amount of overlap with conspiracy theories. And right, yeah. they're not about half of white evangelical Protestants agree with QAnon, according to Denison University. And so the big lie about the election fraud just, just plays right into that sense right. Um, uh, the government being 
somehow secretive and out to get people. So those are actually, I mean, these are all ideas that people could agree that they they think those things, they don't need a, to be put on the couch to sort of elicit those things. They might put it in different language. But then, um, you know, it, it moves over toward unconscious motivations when you when you get into the cult-like recruiting tactics and the love bombing and the bombarding with the same messages and the use of media predicting opposition from liberals who are vilified. And so it nullifies uh, liberal arguments in advance. Mm-hmm. Uh, where Freud comes in, um, you know, I'm not a pure Freudian. I, I know very few people these days who are, but... Right. Um, but he had a lot of good things to say. And his book on group psychology, I I was looking at it again as all of this was building up over the last many years and thinking, wow, this is absolutely as relevant today as it ever wa- was. He wrote it on the heels of World War II. I, I mean, World War I. Right. Um, but his it, people knew about group dynamics before Freud and they knew about the the sort of what we might call peer pressure or group persuasion. What they, what he brought to the table was the importance of a narcissistic charismatic leader and the way in which the leader and the followers have this symbiotic relationship mm-hmm. where the leader only ever wants anything for himself, power, wealth, admiration, all of that. Um, but he is also very able to perceive the needs of the followers and pretend to be providing their needs when, in fact, all he's doing is pumping up his own his own sense of what inside is actually a very deep, hollow place of unfulfillment. And followers on the are listening to these hyperbolic, charismatic speeches and thinking that, as Freud said, they hand over their conscience to this person because they believe that he is the one who's going to finally solve their problems and fulfill what they need that they haven't, that they feel resentful that they haven't had in the rest of their life in particular. And so they actually hand over their sense of morality to this person because his simplistic, all or nothing, right and wrong. Mm-hmm answers to things, solutions to problems, appeals to, ah, finally, I'm going to get what I need. So his his bravado and his bluster is actually filling up a different kind of empty hole that they have, which is one of neediness. So it it gets, it's not just Freud. Um, There are some important insights that Heinz Kohut had also um, that I talk about in the book in terms of um, the relationship of leaders and followers. And um, and then just we all, according to another theorist, Melanie Klein and others, uh, we all have a tendency when we're under threat or when we're not feeling good to sort of start splitting things into yeah. all good or all bad. <clears throat> Uh, whereas when we're feeling mature and healthy, we are able to hold the good and bad together in our minds. Like my friend is being crabby right now and she doesn't hate me. Uh, she She's just being crabby right now. But most of the time 
she's really wonderful. That kind of, instead of, she's really crabby right now, she hates me, I'm going to end this relationship. Uh, and that is also, that kind of splitting is the hallmark of traumatic experience. And so the, the most probably speculative thing I say in, in this part of the book is that some people who've been traumatized earlier in life may be drawn to this kind of all or nothing thinking and to the good and evil battle. On the other hand, many trauma survivors are all too well attuned to what that looks like and they wouldn't mm. have anything to do with it. So it might help to explain why some military and police who've seen horrible things joined into that movement at the Capitol uh, because they saw this as a battle that they could engage in for patriotism. Um, but for the most part, um, trauma doesn't give you good answers. It just gives you extremes. Wow. Yeah. It's, and that, that topic of splitting, I think is a, is a interesting one just because there, there seems to be this strong motivation and this is in partly in the definition of Christian nationalism to restore to this perfect place of, you know, in the past. Yes. And anything else that diverges from that is, is, is needs to be eliminated. Right. And of course that nostalgia is for a lifestyle that may or may not ever have existed for most people in this country, certainly not for mm. full of color and native Americans, but and, and, yeah. of, you yeah. know, motherhood and apple pie and picket fences and all of that um, has a certain faux nostalgic appeal. And right. another thing about, where Christian nationalism is geographically concentrated, it's more in the South and somewhat in the Midwest. In a oh, sense. We've, we've got a whole lot over here in Idaho. <laughs> yeah, so I just heard. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was recently uh, hearing about Ammon Bundy. Yeah, um, he's, one, he's one of our cherished uh, <laughs> citizens. Right. But, you know, the, the, law, the myth of the lost cause and the right. mystery for the old south is very strong in a lot of southern rhetoric and so it's also no surprise mm -hmm. that you see confederate flags intermingled with flags jesus saves at these events because it's all part of that package right it's so hard to understand just where you're coming from Try to see things from a different point of view Trying not to pigeonhole Or simply write you off But it's so much simpler if the parody is true It's so easy to believe it's really Across the great divide, sick of human hearts reduced to reds or blues. 
Good. That, that that song, A Better Bridge by Thrice, is just perfect, perfect. for this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. In fact, uh, I believe the next half of our interview, which we'll do next episode, um, Pamela does a, uh, you say, does a great job actually leading into then how do we talk to? <laughs> right. Uh, do, how do we cross that divide? Yeah. And uh, so uh, that'll be, that'll be uh, the next, uh, the next episode. So hopefully... Hopefully it'll be like, oh, you'll listen to her and you'll go, oh my gosh, what do I do? And it's like, we, you know, just tune right. in. Right. To understand the, um, you know, the psychological motivations of what uh, I think is a good, a good place to start for any kind of conversations, right? Like, I mean, if we boil down all of our, our humanness into some essentials, a lot of us have a lot of the similar psychological underpinnings, you know, belonging um just the needs protection safety the, oh yeah i mean you yeah, talk about if, you know like maslow's hierarchy of yeah. Needs. You know, you, yeah 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 you need, you need food and shelter and when those are threatened oh i mean you're you're you're, you're feeling stuck yeah um yep, yep, you're yep. going to be looking for allies to form community that's, that's going right. to help you survive right. mm-hmm. and very good um, so yeah there's a lot there oh so good okay well, man, I, I'm glad you did that. When did you actually do that interview, by the way? I did that um, probably <laughs> right after, I think it was right after the anniversary of J6. There you go. Yeah. So, so almost a year ago. Or are you saying the anniversary this I mean, year? No, no, this 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 year. Yeah. So the yeah. second anniversary. Yeah. Isn't that crazy to think it has been two years? That is, that is kind of crazy to think uh, because... The after effects of it are so, yeah. Um, at least for those of us who are paying attention, it's hey, still right. with us. Oh yeah. Um, one of the one of the things that that makes me think of is, uh, have you read or decided to read the uh, report from the I uh, the committee? I have not read the report, but I have. Um, so, you know, I like to listen to podcasts, etc. While I'm doing some housework. There for a while, rather than podcasts, I had the um, um, the actual sessions playing, you know, as they presented their, what was it, seven, eight, nine installments of the their findings over the course of a year. Uh, so I was listening to that, but I have not read the actual document <laughs> itself. So, so I, it's... I remember when I read the um, 9-11 Mueller, the Mueller. Oh, the Mueller. Okay. Yeah. 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 And, you know, and I heard all these people making statements about, well, it didn't prove anything. It didn't show anything. There wasn't any <laughs> collusion and all that kind of stuff. And I was always just so. Um, you didn't read the. <laughs> you didn't read the whole thing, did you? Yeah. Because the first part, first part basically says, well, there's a lot of problems here. And um, but there's nothing we can pr- uh, prosecute on. The second right. part was like, there's a ton of things we could prosecute on if he was not president. Right. And listed, I think, eight different areas of um, obstruction of justice. Yep. And it's like, yeah, it did find stuff. Yes, exactly. And I, so, so in my mind, it's like it's my responsibility to read this one yeah. too because it's like that's 
part of the same story. It is. It yeah. is, isn't it? Really? So, so crazy. Uh, yeah. So I guess uh, we're 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 now in the fourth quarter of our uh, discussion since yeah, we're so, sticking so, to. You know, it's it a framework to, to lighten things up. A bit. Lighten it up a little bit. Let yeah, me start with we... a joke. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so you know, the big show right now is The Last of Us, right? Everybody's talking about The Last of Us. Yeah, and I don't have HBO Max, so okay. I, I'm missing out. I have not seen any of it yet, but I have the okay. video game. And everybody's discussion about it prompted me to like, you know, I never did actually finish that video game. So I've been playing it, you know, five minutes here, 10 minutes there on and off the past week. And, and uh, so uh, in it, there's, there's characters you live, you live in and embody one of these characters, but you travel along with these characters. And so you actually kind of get to, you know, know them a bit and they have conversations. And in one of the conversations is they have found an old joke book. (laughs) <laughs> so wait so what is what is the what is the uh period in which this happens what is the time is it like all right contemporaneous yep. with now yeah. or is it like so in the future the, a long ways or well, so the outset of the game is 2013 okay. which was like the release of the game so it was present day and an outbreak happens of this it's a fungus and that's 2013 then the rest of the game is 20 years later so it's been 20 years Ah, it's this this aftermath of these is still ongoing uh um it's not an outbreak anymore but you know like these fungus fungus you know getting people so anyway so you're traveling along with these and the joke book so here's the joke that i literally was like okay that made me laugh because it's their cheesy cheesy jokes what did the green what did the green grape say to the purple grape? I I have no idea. Hey, stop holding your breath. <laughs> okay. All right. That's 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 and those are the things that will save us yeah. in the future. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, so so you think about these, so these post-apocalyptic, uh, post-apocalyptic, that's post-apocalyptic. <laughs> I'm getting too many syllables in there. You know, yeah, it's a big word, those, buddy. Those, those those doomsday things. There you go. So, <laughs> so, so they usually, it, it gets me thinking about, well, how does society... Uh, form again how do cultures develop and what do they reach back in the past that's going to give them insight to move forward into the future and so you've got a group of people let's say the only thing that survives any library is a joke book as a joke book and some comic books they find no constitutions (laughs) no science (laughs) (laughs) a joke book yeah that's funny no that's good that's a good thought and then have to form a society yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what All joke? Right. What what joke would be the right one to form society? Ooh. Yeah. Because some some jokes are kind of like cautionary tales, you know. You're right. So 
I'm going to Google what joke could fo- help form a new society. You know, Let's that is says. something to ask chat um, GPT. That is funny. Have, have you used chat GPT yet? I have no, I've seen, you know, people have sent me things and I have not used it yet. I'm, I want to check it out. I want to use, I want to have it craft an outline and see, you know, how usable it would be to me. Yeah, I, do, I will I tell you the majority of, of what people have sent me are, um, you know, like, hey, look, this can preach a sermon. And I, I look at it and I go, I mean, sure. Yeah, that that is a sermon. <laughs> <laughs> so I finally had a, I finally had my first student try to use chat GP on an assignment. Yeah. And it was so I mean, it was just it's so obvious. It was so it was completely obvious. And what it was is the 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 material that the chat pulled things from had to do with a translation from another language of Ooh. the the question. Oh and my like, goodness. Oh. Well, and yeah, what I was I'm like, okay, yeah. So, so uh my friend sent me like, give me a, a text, I sent it, and and he's like, Give me a, you know, do you want an illustration? All this. And I mean it did. It came back with a perfectly f- competent sermon, but I'm like, you know, there's no way this uh, chat GPT reads. I mean, I know it uses all available data, but it uses the majority or whatever of things. And I'm like, there's no way it's going to present what I believe, <laughs> you know, on well, this text yeah. about the sermon. It, what, it's, it's a, what, it's a, do you, I mean, you, you you understand how the AI is working, really? I mean, yeah, most like people don't. They, it's re, like, isn't it read? It's reading uh, the internet, right? I mean, up to a certain point so far, and it's getting more closer to every day, right? Right. And in fact, the more people use it, by the yeah. way they're asking their questions, the more general yep. it's, it, you know, it's, and you know, if it's just one person asking asking a question, the response is very very specific to that one person's wording and format. Yep. And so it's it's becoming more complex. Yeah. Um, I am sure. So that is, I bet there's a way to get it close to what I. But I mean, you'd have to input so many like through the lens of Alfred North Whitehead, Thomas Taylor. You know, you'd have to like input so many components i bet it would get there but <laughs> yeah i mean it might maybe yeah, i don't know if it would ever sound like an individual right 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 um <laughs> yeah some people they show their like they're like gpt wrote a song this is mind-blowing and i'm like eh. <laughs> oh, i mean it is, is a song it rhymes sure there is a gpt file forgot where i saw it it was an article about these different files and it was oh it was google's gpt for music yeah and you could put type in all these or not type but you could you could listen to these samples of a variety of different styles of music mm-hmm. you know just a whole uh, worldwide variety of music and yeah it had the rhythm and the general instrumentation of a particular style reggae opera uh marching band i mean but what was weird is it completely made the vocal amorphous i mean it was i mean you could you could tell it sounded like a a human voice yeah but there was no language that 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 was 
was being spoken. It was just these, you know, consonants and vowels in word. They sounded like words, but it was no, 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 no language. Yeah. And so it was. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it was really it's weird. Like, it was, it's like when it they. creepy. Yeah, that's what I say. It's like when they AI generate art and it looks it's really good. And then there's six fingers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, like, wait, that's not how we look. Who looks like that? Yeah, it did. It did have a specific, you know, particularly alien sounding voice. Yeah, that's interesting. So I keep I I, I keep going back to the OpenAI uh, website and says Chat uh, GPT is at capacity right now. So I'm guessing there's a lot of students trying to get some homework done. <laughs> Crunch time right a now. Lot of, hey, a lot um, of preachers trying to get some sermons completed. That's funny. Well, speaking of music, the Grammys happened. You may not have known this, but the Grammys happened this week. Well, you know, I kind of wanted to watch it just because I never pay attention so, to that. Oh, stuff. so you did know no, it was was happening? Yeah, yeah. But usually, usually it's like, well, you know, they usually don't have the music I listen to. So <laughs> I, not, I mean, I mean, lately I've been listening to a lot of you know. Um, antifa and socialist punk so i mean it's like i'm sure there was, there was not a category for that no there's definitely not uh that's interesting so there i didn't watch it and i'll be honest i didn't even know it was like happening like oh, really yeah i mean i knew it was coming it's award season but it just all of a sudden oh yeah the grammys were last night and here's what happened i'm like whoa so <laughs> i was not aware okay. however uh, I know the big one of the big talking points was uh, Beyonce again, once again, once snubbed again. for yeah album of the year, has never won it, despite having some of the most landmark albums, like historically landmark type albums, Lemonade, for example, in 2016, absolutely so, should have been so album that, of the year. That was the last album of hers that I listened to in its entirety. Yeah, you know, just to get the whole. Uh, feeling of it yep and other than that i I don't listen to a lot of pop music me i'm not yeah so i i mean none of the albums oh so i listen to some of the ones that i'm like actually you know it kind of cuts through the formulaic a bit um so i do listen to some taylor swift just because sometimes she's Uh, interesting and i did listen to taylor swift's album when it came out was it called midnight yep and then um I, I listen to, you know, if Adele has an album, I'll listen to it because she's just super talented. So, you know, yeah. but none of the other albums, I didn't, you know, Harry Styles. Nope. Didn't hear it. And that one kind of surprised me. I mean, I, one of the things that I have, I only have two stations programmed in my, my, my car. Mm-hmm. Well, most of the time I listen to stuff off my phone anyway, you know, when I get into my car. Yeah. But I've got, I've got uh, NPR radio or, you know, public radio. Yep, and I've got a pop music station because <laughs> I, I consider that to be one of my weaknesses is not being fully informed on pop music. Right. So, so I'm like, really okay. not. It's got to yeah, be so the like, big ones that everybody's talking about. Just because everybody's talking about, oh. it, I'll know that it's there. But see, I want to be able to hear it. So when somebody yeah. talks about it, I go, "Oh yeah, I know that one." Yep. And they'll yep. look at me like, "What? You know? You listen yeah. to that stuff?" So everyone so. is always surprised when I. Uh, i've won you know there's always this like three truths and a lie game and all that right i always get people with i have seen i have seen taylor swift in concert everybody assumes that's a lie 
<laughs> well, I just have. because it's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> but I did. I did. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you, I, you, you, yeah, always has to be past tense because it'll never happen again. That's right. It, which which I probably. don't really understand. How can nobody get in when her concerts are always full? Yeah, nobody's in here, but we're sold out. <laughs> yeah, there's. Like, I know yeah, it's I crazy. Know. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, so I will confess. So I have not, I've not been able to compare Beyonce's album to others to know if she was truly sub snubbed. I just know there's a history of that <laughs> happening to her. So, well, you know, and I, I wasn't sure what the differences were between album of the year and performer of the year, but yep. like Harry, Harry Styles. I yeah, mean, right. I mean, that one surprised me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it surprised a few people, but uh, you know, maybe even. So, hang on just a second. What? <laughs> we have a guest? Yeah, sort of. I don't know if you can hear. I, I can see her. She's yeah, dancing okay. behind you. Mm. And then, you know, if, we, if she had a headset, she could join in as a, as a guest. <laughs> we might save it, though, and oh, sometimes use it. Anyway, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's uh, that's the the Grammy. Yep, I at this point it just doesn't i don't know i'm i won't go into the politics of it all i just know if you look back (laughs) and you say 32 awards but never ever i mean to win any any season that you win a bunch of awards but one of them isn't album of the year something that just doesn't feel right right i mean because like it feels like somebody if it produced if it produced that many awards it must have been pretty good. It, it must have been, been a really good. good year. Yeah, it's like, but that, but you weren't. It wasn't a great album. Like, <laughs> well, so yeah, fun. and so and so. I mean, we've got the Oscars coming up and all that, and I haven't mm-hmm. followed the Oscar um, movies very closely. My favorite and, movie is Everything Everywhere All at Once. Love see, it. I, I I do want to see that one, but I really want to see so the uh, the Banshees movie. Um, oh yes, I still need to watch uh, that one too. The Banshees of Vilsharin? No, yeah. <laughs> you something close to that. Yes, yeah, the, the Banshees of some. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say just an Irish village, but <laughs> all, all the trailers just leave me like, why did he just stop being a friend and? Mm-hmm. But it's like I think there's something really profound, perhaps, in the storytelling that I that needs to be uh, unearthed in that. So you gotta watch definitely it. Definitely on you my list. Watch it. Yep, me too. Gotta watch it. But um, yeah, but you know, watching a movie means you actually have to leave the house, <laughs> go to a theater, because not all of them which, are available for streaming. Which I have done twice for everything, everywhere, all at once. I've seen it twice in the, the- theaters, and it must, in my opinion, you, you want the full effect. You gotta watch it in the theaters. Just from the from the um, trailers I've seen, it really needs to have the IMAX. Uh, it is, it's, I don't know. Is, is there an IMAX version of it? Probably. Gotta yeah, be. it seems like that would be awesome. <laughs> oh. So that's that. So that'll be some homework. We need to see if we can watch some movies. Okay, let's do it. We'll but, talk about. I'll watch Banshees for sure. So I I need. I guess I should watch some movies. But I'll tell you right now, uh, main thing that I've been watching is Hulu's sixteen nineteen project. Yeah. Oh, you mentioned that last episode too. It's a good, that's a good one. Or I haven't seen it yet, but that's a good one to watch. I bet. And so I'm not really paying attention because usually I let Carla have the remote. (laughs) I should say, let her have it. I just, I I would rather her have it because then I don't have to make weighty decisions. 
Oof. Um, but I think it's only coming out like one episode a week. Right. So I you can't just right. like go through the whole thing. Dwell on which it. Is, which is great because mm-hmm. if I were to binge on it, it would be overpowering and I might feel bad and then I might become, you know, a conservative a, in a Florida shell. or something. <laughs> well, it makes me feel bad. <laughs> May, that's true. So let's not but talk act- about it anymore. <laughs> actually, it actually it was uh, it's it's been really, really meaningful. It, the the one on music was great. And it even Oof. made me like disco a little. <laughs> At least That's appreciate awesome. the spirit of disco. There you go. There you go. Oh. I reckon you recognize the spirit. And uh, yeah. So who's going to be the Super Bowl champ? That's the last thing we got to talk about. Eagles. Eagles. E- I'm going for the, yep. Philadelphia Eagles. E- Okay, because it was funny the 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 Zoom kind of blanked out there for it. It, It's like wait, Eagles, Eagles, Eagles. Yep. My case, they are the more well-rounded team. That that said, the Chiefs have the best player on the field, Patrick Mahomes, and that oftentimes is enough. So oftentimes, do you think that? And I haven't followed this closely, but what is what, what's the matchup between Mahomes' offensive line and the Eagles' defensive line? Oof, because yep. if he uh, has to run a lot, if he has mm-hmm. to scramble a lot, or if he gets tackled many times, how many? How much does his ankle have in it? That's right. That's that's why I say I think he's limited enough by that in the Eagles' defensive line. Holy cow! So good. Yeah. So good. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's like they they're the overlooked all stars. Those. Yep, those mammoth uh, guys who just crash into each other because mm-hmm. of, you know, I mean, I remember watching. It was the camera what number he is, but he was like he was the right tackle, and I just watched Mahomes get well, you know creamed a couple of times because that. Yep, his his tackle was not getting um, that you know the outside whether it was an outside linebacker or defensive end just wasn't getting the stop. Mm-hmm. It's like that. That can't happen very many times. Exactly. So, so good. It's gonna be a good one, though. I do think it'll be a um, a close contest. So, well, I suppose that I may watch it. <laughs> well, you gotta watch I'm... it. You gotta watch it for the billion dollar ad campaigns that are. Well, so here's the other here's the other piece yeah, of trivia. The advertisements yeah. are going to be significantly different in one, at least in one uh, area. Yes. This is the first time in 33 years that Anheuser-Busch did not buy all of the alcohol ads. Ooh. Because um, there's and, a limit, right? You can only you have well, a limit. I, yeah, I'm not sure what, what it was, but it just, you know, so the, the, the little news blurb I saw, it was the uh, Coors Molson Corporation. They said they, they deliberated for about 30 seconds whether or not they should throw some money into the Super Bowl. He said, he said we, we really didn't even take 30 seconds. It was a no-brainer. So it's like entry, entering another another corporate beer mass producer. Um, oh, yeah. Also it, getting their it, money in. And it's definitely not going to have anything to do with what beer I would prefer. It's going to be, <laughs> can they make an entertaining commercial? Exactly. Are they going to have Clydesdales and a puppy that make me cry? And if they uh-huh. can't, well, it's not good. So. <laughs> <laughs> Pull some heartstrings, beer companies. Yeah. Come on. Make us laugh. Make us cry. 
Yeah, but don't just give us information. That's <laughs> definitely not what a commercial is for. I will say, do you remember? I cannot, I don't even remember what product it was, but where's the, the weird baby cro- <laughs> crocodile? No, what was a dragon baby? I don't know. <laughs> so maybe, maybe that's something we could talk about the good old days of weird advertisements. Yeah. And so, cause that, uh, often that's the conversation. What was the first Super Bowl ad? One of them, one of the, the uh, advertisers is going to be that, um, Jesus gets you right. Group. He gets us, which I mean, I've seen some of them and I think, okay, that's all right. I mean, yeah, he does. I get that. Um, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not overly thrilled at this point who the big financial donors are to the Listen. campaign, but that doesn't necessarily say about who the creators are. So I don't know. Everybody seems feelings. to hate it. Hate, hate it. I mean, I don't mean hate, but I mean, <clears throat> it feels like they're getting heat from every side now because people know who the funder is right right but also i have now seen people who i would have thought align with that you know funder right <laughs> on a lot of ways um hate the ads because it pushes a social justice warrior jesus and a um milly mouth wishy-washy you know oh, message wow. So. that's awesome that's great so can't <laughs> so it's please taking, anybody it's not gonna make anybody happy i guess oh, in, wow. on, on, i'd say in christian circles so progressive christians yeah. don't like it because there's a hidden agenda funders are this right and then my friends are all sharing apologists articles of like why it's terrible and secretly uh socialist and communist and so, in other words, that's almost a sign of how good it could possibly yeah, be because I know. it's hated I like, by everybody. I know. I'm like, oh. I read the articles from my friends who post those, and I'm like, oh, I cannot believe I'm filling a, a need. I, it's like, okay, please don't like it. I get it. But your reasoning and arguments for not liking it, I want to argue against those because it's so bad <laughs> that you, why you're hating it. Because I'm like, oh. I mean, the, those two sides need to have a debate because yeah. they both agree, but they just yeah. debate on, but the debate is why. on why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on the why. It's, yeah. <laughs> oh, so funny. All right. Hey, so next week, uh, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about how did things turn out for the 20. 22 NFL season championship in the 2023 Super Bowl. Yeah, it's amazing that the season and the the championship game are a whole year apart. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my word. Yeah. Silly bird. All right. Sounds good. Good talking with you. Another good good episode. Good interview. Excited to hear the second half. And uh, hit end recording. Where is it? <laughs> there you go. That no, out. Wait. Still going. It's still recording. There it is right there. <laughs> so many buttons are hidden. <laughs> <laughs>